This episode of Mayo Clinic Talks is brought to you by National Dairy Council. Since 1915, National Dairy Council is dedicated to research and education of dairy foods. As a nonprofit organization founded by dairy farmers, National Dairy Council is committed to providing science-based education on dairy's nutritional benefits for health and wellness. Learn more at usdairy.com backslash National Dairy Council. This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Osteoporosis is responsible for approximately 2 million fractures per year. It's estimated that 50% of all women and 25% of all men over the age of 50 will suffer an osteoporosis-related fracture. Bone fractures, especially of the spine and hip, are the most serious complications of osteoporosis. While vertebral compression fractures can cause chronic back pain, hip fractures can result in chronic disability and even death. Yet nearly 80% of older Americans who suffer fractures have never been tested or treated for osteoporosis, and it is a very treatable condition. Today's podcast is about common fractures associated with osteoporosis, and my guests include Dr. Kristen Hidden from the Department of Orthopedic Surgery and Dr. Jad Fair from the Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Kristen and Jad, welcome, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Let, let's start by asking you to tell us who's most at risk for a fracture related to osteoporosis. Just as you said, Dr. Chucka, osteoporosis can affect more than 200 million people worldwide, with an estimated healthcare cost to be $474 billion over the next two decades. So obviously, this is a pertinent topic for everyone. And as you mentioned, it's more common in women over the age of 50, specifically in individuals who are postmenopausal with low estrogen levels. However, fractures related to osteoporosis, or what we coin fragility fractures, can occur in men as well. But sedentary lifestyles, poor nutrition, and improper calcium or vitamin D consumption, as well as perhaps minimal access to sunlight and genetics and certain medications such as corticosteroids or immunosuppressive drugs are some of the most common causes of osteoporosis and subsequent fragility fracture. Okay. We're going to cover the most common fractures related to osteoporosis, vertebral, hip, and wrist. So there's different kind of bone in the vertebrae versus the long bones. How does the bone structure differ in these two types of bone? Sure, that's a great question. There are two main types of bone that we think about, the two being cortical bone and then the second being cancellous bone. Cortical bone is the more rigid bone in the periphery and the cancellous bone is the less dense or spongier bone that's in between. And the ratio of cortical bone to cancellous bone is higher in the long bones than vertebrae which is likely the main reason why vertebral body fractures are so common. They just lack the cortical bone and have a little bit more of that cancellous bone or important fragility fractures. So the cortical bone also thins over time and that cancellous bone is more abundant. So when a person develops osteopenia, osteoporosis, do both types of bone have the same degree of bone loss or can it be more in one than the other? It seems I've seen differences and it surprises me. What's the story? 
Right, the bone loss that occurs uh, with age, which, what we call age-related bone loss, is uh, affects differently the cancellous or what we call also trabecular bone versus the uh, cortical bone. The trabecular bone has more surface area across the body because it is trabeculation that are connected with each other. And with more surface area, when you have remodeling, you have more bone loss affecting that. So there is more affecting trabecular bone with this loss that happens. However, as Dr. Hidden mentioned, the cortical bone uh, is uh, quite abundant in long bones, so the volume is bigger. Eventually, as women go through menopause, after menopause, and they progress with age, and as men age as well, uh, cortical bone will also be affected and have something we call cortical porosity when you start having these uh, perforation happening in the cortex. So let's start by talking about vertebral fractures. Which vertebrae are most likely to suffer a vertebral compression fracture? That's a great question. Usually this occurs at what we call the junctions of the spine or where the thoracic spine meets the lumbar spine, and also subsequently below that where the lumbar spine meets the sacrum. And so specifically, this is at the T11 to T or to the L1 level and the L4 to S1. So it's T11 to L1 and then L4 to S1. And so additionally, there can be sequential vertebral fractures that can occur at the thoracic spine with preferential wedging of the anterior portion in relation to the posterior portion. And so this over time creates what we call a kyphotic deformity in which patients begin to essentially tip over and develop that hunchback appearance that we've all seen. What are the typical presenting symptoms of the vertebral compression fracture? It really depends on the level of the fracture. Some patients may develop chest wall tenderness or soreness where that respective thoracic nerve root innervates. But in very rare scenarios in the lumbosacral spine, the vertebral body and adjacent disc may displace and cause pressure on the adjacent nerves. And so some concerning signs to look for include bowel or bladder incontinence or even constipation or numbness around the perineal region. But those are super rare. Okay. It seems I've seen patients who I find wedging, but have never really had symptoms you know, of a vertebral compression fracture. Are these asymptomatic at times? These are uh, quite commonly actually asymptomatic. Depending on the reports, 60% uh, up to two-thirds of vertebral fractures can be what we call silent fractures. We only catch them on an X-ray that is being done for a different reason or a CT scan or MRI different, done for different reasons. So it's very important to screen patients uh, for vertebral fracture. And that's because these fractures estimated increase the risk of future fractures, vertebral, but also other fractures such, such as hip fractures. And so it's important to screen anyone who has very low bone density or anyone who has loss of height of more than one and a half inches or equal to four centimeters in their lifetime, or in particular diseases such as hyperparathyroidism, important to screen for vertebral fractures. Well, since many of these are asymptomatic, do we know if these are just spontaneous fractures or are they associated with the specific activity the patient may have done? So most osteoporotic compression fractures in the spine are typically from low energy falls. They could even be caused from minimal trauma, such as sneezing. And so it's critical for patients to remain active with aerobic exercise to consider lifting appropriate weights in order to load their skeleton and help prevent these low energy injuries from occurring, just as Dr. Sphere mentioned. What's the best way for us to evaluate these? Is plain film x-ray adequate or is there any benefit CT or MRI? 
Again, that's a really good question. Usually these are the most cost-effective way to make a diagnosis through radiographs. However, sometimes the bone quality is so poor that you really can't see what you need to see to make a diagnosis. You can have adjacent overlap from lungs, soft tissue windows, things like that. And so a CT or MRI is typically useful when radiographs are non-diagnostic or they're just equivocal and you can't really pinpoint an exact location if they have pain on exam, but you really can't correlate to imaging. I think that's reasonable to consider a CT scan to look at the bone in better detail. Now, if neurologic symptoms are present, uh, MRI is most useful to rule out compressive injuries to the adjacent spinal cord and nerve roots. So how do you treat these and how do you decide who needs treatment? It's certainly a little bit of an art of medicine as well as a conversation with the surgeon, but most vertebral compression <laughs> fractures are treated without surgery, especially if there's minimal height loss of the vertebra itself. And so this can be in the form of special braces that can help align the spine in an optimal position. And muscle relaxants may be used, but honestly sparingly in the acute injury phase. And the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery is unable to recommend the use of oral pain medications for neurologically intact patients with symptomatic vertebral compression fractures. So this typically, again, requires a conversation with the treating physician. What about vertebroplasty? Is that done very often, and when is it indicated? So the AOS publishes clinical practice guidelines to help surgeons counsel patients and treat them accordingly. Of the 11 recommendations that we have, there's really only one strong recommendation, and that's actually against vertebroplasty. And that's based off of two level one studies comparing vertebroplasty with essentially a sham procedure. And in those studies, they reported no statistically significant difference between the two procedures in pain or function. However, you can imagine these studies have been criticized due to the low number of patients enrolled as well as the low participation rates of the eligible patients. So ultimately, this does come down to a conversation with the treating surgeon, the endocrinologist, to help really determine who would benefit from vertebroplasty or not. How long does it take for these things to heal? It typically takes about anywhere from 6 to 12 weeks to heal, depending on the patient. And they should be followed closely to make sure that they're responding sort of to that timeline. And if they're not, meaning their clinical exams concerning they have persistent pain, just simply not doing well. I think at that point, it's reasonable to get advanced imaging to compare their injury films to their subsequent follow-up visit. But normally, it takes about anywhere from about two to three months to heal. You've earlier mentioned some uh, nerve root compression from these. Can you go into a little bit more detail in terms of the potential complications of a compression fracture? Sure. It really varies on the level and the location. Typically, in the thoracic spine, we don't see too much neurologic deficit just based on where those nerve roots exit around the chest wall. However, if there's central stenosis or central compression on the spinal cord, that can be a pretty severe sort of clinical picture where patients have difficulty feeling their legs, difficulty walking. That's obviously more of an acute surgical urgency, which is diagnosed on advanced imaging in their exam. But some complications from these, you know, they cannot heal. So you could have a non-union of this. They can have progressive deformity, and sometimes that does require procedures. Let's talk about hip fractures now. Who's at risk for a hip fracture? Sure. So typically patients older than 70 years old with a history of osteoporosis are most susceptible. However, ironically, the number one predictor of a hip fracture is history of a previous hip fracture. And so that's why the collaboration with our endocrinology colleagues is absolutely critical when a hip fracture occurs, mostly to prevent the other side from injuring as well. When we order a bone mineral density, we're usually given the... Um, density or the T-score for the total hip and also the femoral neck. Which area is the most important in terms of being susceptible for a fracture? 
there's two main areas that we really see injuries occurring for a hip fracture. And the hip is a very general term. It can mean the socket, it can mean the ball, it can be the neck. But really where we see it most commonly injured in these fragility fractures is at the femoral neck, so essentially where the ball meets the shaft. And also just below the femoral neck is what we call the intertrochanteric region or intertrochanteric femur fracture. Those are the two most common areas. Mm -hmm. I seem to recall some controversy, this is probably a decade ago, about whether a hip fracture results in a fall or a fall results in a hip fracture. Have we figured out which occurs first or maybe it both happens? I don't know. Very good point. And most often hip fractures do occur from a true mechanism. So that's a low energy fall from standing. Uh, but typically it's something that doesn't really correlate, meaning if you and I were to fall, we wouldn't necessarily break our hips, but those who do, that obviously is a big red alert flag to say their bone quality is quite poor. Now there's a subclass of fragility fractures and are actually related to dysphosphonate medications and we call them atypical femur fractures. And that's a rare scenario where the bone breaks and then the fall occurs because the bone is broken. So it's important to discuss these details with the patient and their family as the mechanism can often provide clues to the patient's, the patient's bone quality. What's the treatment going to be for someone who suffers an osteoporotic hip fracture? So there is the immediate uh, surgical uh, treatment, uh, which I'll defer to Dr. Hidden, but there's also the long-term treatment that Dr. Hidden mentioned in terms of preventing another fracture with secondary fracture prevention. Kristen, do you want to comment on the surgical treatment? Absolutely. So typically, these are treated surgically just because the non-operative mortality rate at one year for non-operative management of hip fracture is upwards of 70%. And so clearly, that's um, an area that we reserve for patients who are so severely medically frail that really the risks of surgery outweigh the benefits of the independence that they would gain. And again, that's a conversation with not only the surgical team, but our palliative care team really discussing goals of care. But almost always, these injuries are operative. And when it comes to the prevention, secondary fracture prevention, a hip fracture, the both femur neck and intertrochanteric fractures are indicative of skeletal fragility. And even without obtaining a bone density, you can call the patient having a clinical diagnosis of osteoporosis, and these patients warrant pharmacotherapy to reduce the risk of future fracture. We do obtain bone density in many patients to assess the, the degree of their fragility, which will also serve as a baseline for follow-up, but pharmacotherapy is indicated uh, in these patients. Okay. Let's talk about the potential complications of a hip fracture. What are they and why is a hip fracture associated with such significant morbidity and mortality? Aside from the surgical standard risks with, you know, say infection, blood clots, everything that could happen with even the most simplest of procedures, let alone a hip fracture, I often tell patients that a hip fracture is worse than a heart attack. And said differently, the one-year mortality for those who sustain a hip fracture is 20 to 30%, even with surgery. So I mentioned the 70% risk without surgery. Even with surgery, that gets to 20 to 30%. And so just less than a third of patients who break their hip won't make it to their one-year postoperative visit. And that's a really big deal. The data with this is, is super humbling. And honestly, it's a good conversation to initiate with the patient and family. Unfortunately, because it's discovered after they break their hip, and so despite that, I think preventative features and preventative approach with our endocrinology colleagues is super important just so that it doesn't happen to the other side. What's the explanation for this mortality? Is, is it the, a thrombotic episode associated with the bed rest? Is that what, uh, what causes this? 
I think the actual fracture itself is a surrogate for how medically frail these people are, unfortunately. And I don't think it's necessarily the, it is obviously associated with their bone quality and bone density, but even more on a granular level, their, their comprehensive clinical picture, meaning their cardiac history, their, their respiratory status, you know, their overall frailty score, if you will, all of that contributes and then sort of makes this uh, summative event, which is typically this hip fracture event that we see them for. So our patients would be far better off if we can find these risks early and prevent the fractures rather than uh, treat them after they've occurred. 100%. All right, well, let's talk about wrist fractures. Uh, which bones of the wrist are most susceptible? Usually the distal radius is most prone to an osteofracture. And what that is, is it's the base of the wrist for the smaller bones that are more towards the fingers called the carpal bones. But almost always it's that distal radius fracture that we hear about for the wrist. And who's at greatest risk for a wrist fracture? In uh, contrast to what we see with hip fractures and vertebral fractures, wrist fractures occur more commonly in early young postmenopausal women. So typically women in their 50s uh, or early 60s, we see an increased risk of wrist fracture and that risk stays the same as they grow older. With hip and vertebral fracture, typically the increase happen after the age of 65 to 70 and there's an exponential increase that continues to go up with age. So we see this most commonly in young younger postmenopausal women. The uh, explosion of people playing pickleball, I've heard, has resulted in a significant number of falls and injuries and risk fractures. Are you, are you seeing that? Totally. In fact, uh, we see wrist fractures, and believe it or not, a lot of Achilles tendon tears, so not even oh. the bone itself. That's been a recent craze throughout mm -hmm. the, the nation, and I think it's great that people are out there and staying active, but maybe stretching ahead of time and, you know, fall prevention is, is good too. Certainly the pickleball phenomenon has, has created some injuries for us. Mm -hmm. Are most of the fractures associated with the fall on an outstretched arm? Almost always. In fact, we abbreviate it, foosh, fall on an outstretched hand. That's how they're usually caused. And this, yeah. is how, this is how we typically see these fracture occur following a fall, either during a sports event or here in Minnesota, slipping on ice when they're taking sure, the crack right. out. Mm -hmm. And how are these treated? Typically depends on patient-related factors, such as their baseline activity level, their functional demand. So certainly the pickleball player might have a little bit more of a functional demand than the stay-at-home knitter, so to speak, um, but the position of the fracture itself and the consequences of healing in that position are also important to take into consideration. Some studies do suggest that fixing distal radius fractures in elderly individuals is equivalent to non-operative care, but every patient, again, is different and requires a conversation with their surgeon. Age in this, in this scenario could just be a number. Is the management of these pretty straightforward or are there complications that can occur? Certainly, even with surgical or non-surgical management, complications can always happen. And so each injury has its innate risks, even with operative or non-operative care. If the wrist does heal in a poor position without surgery, some patients may notice decreased range of motion that can have a functional impact. They may require a surgery to even re-break the bone to fix it in a better position. And occasionally tendon ruptures can occur specifically to the thumb, both with or without surgery, but fortunately these complications are pretty rare. Well, you've given us some pretty compelling reasons to screen for osteoporosis and treat it rather than try to manage the fractures. Can you summarize our discussion? Maybe give two or three key points of uh, what you think is most important 
Uh, as you mentioned, importantly, screening uh, those who are at increased risk, postmenopausal women and uh, men over the age of 70. Screening for vertebral fractures is essential, especially in those who had lost height, their lifetime more than one and a half inches. When it comes to preventing a fracture, treatment for osteoporosis not only includes pharmacotherapy, but preventing a fall and being safe during sports, as we mentioned, or uh, with any movement in older individuals. Completely agree. To dovetail that, I'd also say to emphasize the importance for our patients to remain active and healthy, even into their older years, so to speak, but also just the collaboration that this process requires. I'm innately grateful for the team of experts that we have here, and I think that patients get a comprehensive approach underneath the same roof. And so it's, it's super amazing to work here and to treat patients at this mechanism with this, this level of care. And I'm grateful for Dr. Sphere and as his team's expertise, because I think patients do receive care you know, at their same post-operative visits with their surgeons, which is critical for not only compliance, but their ultimate long-term function and outcomes. Well, as in most areas of medicine, everything we do now is a team effort, and that's a great feeling to work in a team. Well, we've been discussing common fractures associated with osteoporosis with my guests, orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Kristen Hidden, and endocrinologist, Dr. Jad Sfer. Kristen and Jad, thank you so much for both your time and sharing your knowledge with us today. Thank you. Thank you. You can now listen to several hundred different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. We're honored to have you as a listener and hope you tune in again next week. Stay well.